This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. And I'm the founder of Think Productive. We help people to make space for what matters and get more done. And we partner with some of the world's leading companies who share our mission to transform the world of work. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is General Stanley McChrystal. General McChrystal led a stellar military career culminating in becoming the commander of US and allied forces in Afghanistan. And since leaving the US military, he's founded the McChrystal Group and has also written several books. His latest book is called Risk, A User's Guide. So in this episode, we talk about different ways to think about risk, how he led an information sharing revolution in the American secret services, the recent phone call patching up his differences with Joe Biden, and what it was like to get sacked, but in a kind way by Barack Obama. I could have listened to Stan talk all day. This is General Stanley McChrystal. General Stan McChrystal, um, welcome to Beyond Busy. Well, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. You're recording and talking to me from a very purpose-built high-tech office in, in Virginia. Yeah, it's great. And we can talk more about it. It's three blocks from my house. When I was in Iraq, my wife bought a house, you know, sight unseen to me, put me in great debt. And then when I retired and we moved into it, we literally drew a circle because we knew I wanted to walk to work. And so when okay. I when I established yeah. McChrystal Group, we put it three blocks from my house. And it's one of those little decisions about shaping your life yeah. that means so much. For those who like and, and you know, perhaps our younger uh, listeners to the podcast who are, who are not so aware of um, your military career. So just a very successful and seasoned uh, military leader. You're the commander of the International Security Assistance Forces in Afghanistan. And in your book, you talk uh, about some amazing stories from uh, your time serving and leading in Iraq as well. And of course, since then, you've then gone on to found the McChrystal Group and you're working with businesses and, uh, and uh, you know, looking and helping organizations around leadership and strategy. We're going to start by talking about your, your latest book, um, which is called Risk a User Guide. And um, uh, I just wanted to start with a little quote from the book, which I thought would be a, a really nice place to start, just in terms of how you view risk yourself. Um, so a couple of things that you said in the book that really stood out to me. One was you said you were asking yourself the question, how did you rank the risks of losing the fight against the risks of losing colleagues? And then was the risk of losing your own humanity a factor in your decision making? So I just thought that might be a good start point in was was that process where you started to think about risk in a different way and, and started to think about writing this this kind of book? It sure was. Um, you know, like most people, I went through a career when people try to teach you how to deal with risk, sort of the theory of risk and their formulas and matrices and other things to deal with it. But the reality is there are some things that are intensely human about it. In Afghanistan, one of the things that leaders in the U.S. military did was mandate that every soldier wore their body armor when they left an installation, any of our bases. All of the heavy body armor and protective glasses and helmets and whatnot. And their, their reason was well-intentioned, to protect our service members for potential harm. But there were a couple of complicating factors. First was when you deal with Afghans and they don't have body armor and you are going through their village or town, you start to look increasingly alien to them. It increases the distance, the, the intimidation factor, and decreases your ability to connect with them. And second, you send this unintended message that your, your safety is more important than theirs because you have body armor and they do not. There's a famous story from the Korean War of a, a Marine lieutenant goes out on a patrol to capture an enemy prisoner. And when they come back into the lines, the lieutenant's not wearing his flak jacket and the prisoner is. And the, someone asked him and he says, well, the important thing was to keep this prisoner healthy and so protect him. And so if, if the mission is to protect the people, then you can send unintended messages. Similarly, if you try to go out and do combat operations in the mountain of Iraq, mountains of Afghanistan at 10 or 12,000 feet, you don't run around in body armor. You just, it's physically too taxing. 
And so we ran into this, this tension, the risk to our well-being, our personal well-being or the well-being of the people that work for us against the risk to the mission. And I found in Afghanistan, I had to give direction to people to accept more personal risk to them and to their soldiers so that we could operate in a way that was not going to be as damaging to the Afghan people using massive amounts of firepower. And there was, there was a lot of uh, scrutiny of that, particularly from people back in the United States, not as much from soldiers on the ground, because I could explain the rationale to them. But, but people back in the States would say, you're putting my son, daughter, or somebody I know at risk. You're, you're not letting them do everything to protect them. And I said, well, the real risk here is us losing, losing the potential support of the Afghan people. And so in many things in life, I think you've got to look at what's the real risk? What, what are we really worried about? And then you've got to accept often other risks to get there. You also, Graham, mentioned yeah. the thing about the, the moral risk. Um, there is something in all of us that has a set of values that we believe in. And when we're in a warm, dry place on Christmas Eve with our family and someone asks us what mm. our values are, it's pretty easy to say, I'm honest, I won't hurt innocent people, I'll protect the, the, uh, the vulnerable. But then you are in a very difficult war or even crime on the streets or whatever scenario you want to draw. And you are dealing with a, a hard-edged, raw environment and you can find yourself starting to rationalize that I have to be more hard-edged than my opponent so that I can achieve the greater good. You know, if I torture prisoners and I get the information I need in the end, that that's okay because I am trying to, to accomplish something positive. There's a logic to that, and I, I don't think it's completely wrong, but it's certainly not what I sign up to or, or what I want to do. But there's another risk, and that other risk is the corrosion to your values, to corrosion if, without getting too over the top to your soul. And to a military force, that corrosion is almost irreversible. Once, an organ, once a uh, unit or an organization starts doing things that they shouldn't do, whether it's a military unit or even, a, I would argue, a business if you start operating in a way that's cutthroat or takes advantage of your customers and whatnot, there's a near-term reinforcement for it, but there's a long-term cost to it. You're not the same people. You're not the same organization. And, and I think it's hard to redeem an organization going bad without major changes. Yeah, there's a bit in the book, I can't remember where exactly it is in the book, but you talk about the idea of the difference between an unruly mob and an army is discipline and, and having structures. And that part really resonated with me. I have no military experience or backgrounds. And um, yeah, the other thing that I suppose that resonated was that thing about how many generations of your family had been in the military before. But it sort of made me think about that sense of values being tested and, you know, the kind of situations that you would get into with that and the pressure that you would feel, you know, what I read was 150,000 troops and leading 45 allied countries. I mean, there must be untold pressures on you to do things that you don't necessarily feel reflect your values or feel comfortable with. How do you hold steadfast with that and be true to yourself and your style of leadership? Well, first off, you have to think about it and you have to talk about it a lot. When I was in the counterterrorism world and I spent a long time there, it was a, a difficult fight against a truly incredibly difficult enemy. And, and that difficult is probably not a good enough word. In some cases, I'd say psychopathic in terms of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in Iraq and whatnot. So we would have forces uh, captured or killed by the enemy, and we came upon torture chambers, and I went into some environments where I thought I'd seen an awful lot, but I went into things that were medieval. And when you see those things, it first builds up an emotion inside you, and you want to go get the bad people, and your force wants to go get the bad people. And there's this tremendous temptation to sort of let loose the hounds and just let's go after them and let's get this done. And the problem is, with the power of leadership, 
in many, I know, military organizations, if the military leader says to do it, the force will do it. Or if the military leader even does a wink and a nod and says something like, do whatever you have to do to get it done, then suddenly you'll see part of that force initially and then potentially more start to slide into that because they think they've got tacit approval from the leadership to do that. And of course, we've seen it historically. It's just horrific things happen in military forces. So I would say that as an individual leader, you've got to remind yourself constantly what your values are. And then you've got to talk about them to the organization. And you've got to give them a logic to it. You can't just say, we are going to be good because it's morally right. In Afghanistan, I made the argument, we are going to try to protect the population and limit things like collateral damage, civilian casualties, because it's the only way to win. It's also morally right. But the only way to win is to convince the Afghan people that our success is in their interest. And so leaders have got to play that essential role in taking all of the values that we know are right and keeping the organization harnessed to those values. As we mentioned in the book, you know, the difference between a, an army and a mob is discipline. And we've seen that once an army loses discipline or loses its way, then suddenly it becomes a terrible thing for society. And those are, those are forces that we've got to keep in check. And it's back to the trust thing, isn't it? You have to have trust that an army is going to operate in the right way and kind of see um, and kind of you know, look after people ultimately and, and be uh, interested in the security of the country, not interested in their own interests and stuff. And so often, particularly in... I guess in smaller armies where there's there's just uh, there's fewer components, it's kind of easier to lose that discipline, I guess. Well, our nations can't remember a time when the military overthrew the government. And so we get up in the morning and we just assume that the military is aligned with the values of the nation. It protects the institutions of the nation. And yet in many countries, that's not the tradition. And whether or not they are doing it for greed or misplaced sense of responsibility, militaries play this different role. Think about it if you have a challenge or unrest in the nation and you use the military and they don't perform as ordered. And suddenly the military becomes this different uh, factor. And, and that's terrifying if you can't trust the military to do what you need them to do. Truly is. Um, let's talk about the book. So um, the book is called Risk, a User's Guide. And um, one, one of your starting points in the book is to talk about the immune system of the human body and how that deals with the risk. So you, so you studied um, how the human body deals with its own risks or, you know, viruses coming in and everything like that. Uh, how come that was your starting point? What was the, what was the thinking with that? Really, the, the reason for the book was I'd studied risk and, and, and understood a little bit about the theory and science of it. But then you look back at our experience with it, and it's very different. So, for example, before the 9-11 attack in the United States, all of the information needed to stop that attack existed inside the United States government. They just couldn't connect mm. the dots. Then we look at the financial crisis of 2007 and 8. All of the data was there. The indicators were there that we were faced with a bubble in housing and, and other vulnerabilities. And yet we, we dropped the ball. And yet we've been doing financial markets for a long time. And all those companies that went bankrupt had chief risk officers and, you know, risk teams and everything. right? Yeah. Somebody getting paid a lot of money to manage risk and then not being brought into the investment committee meetings like in Lehman Brothers. And then COVID-19, we started the book before COVID-19 arrived, but it turned out to be almost a perfect uh, descriptor of the problem. Because if you think about COVID-19, it's not novel. This particular variant is, but we get them all the time and they come into, yeah. they become pandemics with disturbing regularity. And we know what to do about it because public health has a lot of experience. So we, we actually know the right steps. And we put together institutions and whatnot to be prepared for that. The United States even did an exercise the year before in 2019, testing a scenario that was frighteningly similar to what COVID-19. Mm -hmm. It was an American traveler coming back from China. 
And we found all of these weaknesses. And then this time, we also had a medical miracle. We had vaccines created faster than any time in the history of men. And so those three factors together, you know it's coming, you know what to do about it, and you get this incredible silver bullet of vaccines, and yet we've still dropped the ball. We've still, in my country, had almost 800,000 people die. And so, so why is that? So it gets back to your human immune system question. I was disturbed by the fact that we theoretically know so much about risk, but every time we deal with a big risk, we have a lot of trouble. So why is that? Yeah. If you, I think we focus on the wrong thing. I think we are looking for that risk over the horizon, around the corner or wherever, when in reality, we can find the risk. Just go to the mirror and look there because the greatest risk to us is us. And the analogy to the human immune system comes because every day our bodies estimated to ingest 10,000 microorganisms that can make us sick or kill us every single day. And you say, well, wow, maybe I take this thing for granted. Maybe I need to get up in the morning and kind of do something to get my human immune system motivated for the day. We just take it for granted because it works until it doesn't. And once our immune system is weakened, like with HIV AIDS, you don't die from HIV AIDS. Nobody ever dies from that. What happens is it weakens your immune system and suddenly one of these other threats that normally we fend off with ease becomes potentially lethal. Well, that's what I think we as organizations and societies have. We have a risk immune system, which is very analogous to that human immune system. And it's really those factors which come together to give us the ability to deal with the 10,000 microorganisms we ingest every day so that we can detect those threats, assess them, respond effectively, and learn to get better next time. And it's the health of that system that determines an organization or an individual's ability to deal with risk. Can we just go th through those four in a little bit more detail? Because they, they sort of like a little common theme that comes back throughout the book. So detecting, assessing, responding, and learning. Do you just want to just go through those four in a, in a bit more depth? If you think about it, we have to detect risks out there to us, threats that are coming. The human body can only detect them once they're inside you. But that's okay. It then uses the ability we have to be able to understand when something is arriving on our doorstep. We don't have to know every threat that's coming next year, next week, because that's impossible. There are too many and they're too complex. But when they arrive, we've got to be able to determine, assess how dangerous they are to us. Is this a big deal or not? Do we have to do something about it? And if so, what? The respond, the third is, what do we do? And you say, well, of course, we'll do the right thing. But that's not the case. We normally hampered by some form of inertia. Either we're not doing anything, we got to get moving, or we're doing something else. We're going in a, a direction and a velocity that we have to change. We have to stop doing it or change direction. So that response is key. And then the final one is we've got to learn because you have to get smarter with each one. So you're more efficient next time. You can do it more quickly and deal with that particular threat in a very rapid way. So the key is the health of this system. One thing that struck me, which was quite interesting in the chapter on communication, you talk about um, the idea of access to information. And you, I mean, I just associate the military uh, and particularly anything to do with counterterrorism and, and special forces as being highly secretive, information's power. It's very difficult to to leak information out because you want to run a really tight vessel around information. And what you talk about in the book is that you really sort of campaigned internally to make information more available so that different silos are kind of seeing more of the bigger picture and can put things together. So I'm guessing that's a really risky thing for you to do. And so I'd love to just hear more about that thinking and how how you came to some of those conclusions that that was what was needed. Sure. Well, you really hit the, the crux of it. I mentioned that the 9-11 attack, all the information existed inside the U.S. government, but we couldn't connect it. And I'm not too critical. I mean, it was a failure, but the reality is that the way our structures and cultures were set up, that was a very difficult problem. And so you have to take that on. And you're right about counterterrorism because it is essentially a challenge about learning what is happening and identifying what you have to do about it. In the movies, the hard part is this commando 
kitted out and all the right stuff, jumping through the window and shooting the bad guys. That's hard, but that's the easy part of the mission. The, the hard part is understanding the threat, having the, the information to know what window to jump in, what person to go after and deal with it. And you're also right that in the counterterrorism community, you start with this idea that information is secret. The very idea of the word secret or top secret or even what we call special category intelligence, compartmented intelligence. And how many times have you seen in a movie somebody says, you don't have a need to know, okay? Well, the, pro- the fallacy in that is who knows who needs to know? In Iraq <laughs> one time, my force was going out to get this bad guy and we literally had launched. And the CIA called me and said, hey, that guy's our agent. And I said, well, I'm glad you're telling me now, because in 10 minutes, you know, that would be too late. We might be bringing them to you in a body bag. And yet they were protecting their information, not because they were evil, but because that was the habit. We, yeah. we had this idea that you don't share information because it could leak. Well, the problem is if other entities who need to have that contextual understanding don't have it, everybody's less effective. So my major task in the counterterrorism world for the five years I commanded JSOC or Joint Special Operations Command was to connect all the parts, was to make a community that included civilian agencies, Department of State, British forces that were operating with us, this intelligence community, which is really a whole bunch of different organizations and then different military forces, and get them all into sharing information to a level they never had before, cooperating to the point so we could actually understand what was happening and operate more effectively and efficiently. And you say, well, no problem. That's just, you know, just get everybody to talk. That is really hard. If you've never been in a big organization, Mm -hmm. you may not have an appreciation, but any big organization creates silos and cultures and habits and, and things that impede the ability to pull it together. And so in a complex world, to me, that's, that's almost the first order task. Yeah. But I suppose the, the thing that interested me about that is if you're going to be the one that changes the culture, then the risk's on you if something goes wrong there. So if that information then starts to leak or, you know, uh, the wrong people get hold of the wrong information. So what was what was your sort of personal thought process around that? How were you thinking about that? What was the, What was keeping you up awake at night with that? When we were started the fight, when I took over in 2003... That was exactly the problem. People said, you can't do this because other entities, you know, you'll be leaks and all this. And so we kept these tight little interactions every day. And finally, I said, this won't work. And we blew it up until it was 7,500 people every day for 90 minutes across all this sharing information. And you're right. Wow. The risks were high because it was top secret. That was the level of the video. But, you know, you got 7,500 people. It only takes one to go out and leak it. We actually had very few problems during that period for several reasons. One, there's a tendency to over to overclassify information. So a lot of things which are classified secret don't need to be. Another was that people showed a level of responsibility that was pretty impressive. One short story, in 2007, we, we did this operation in the northern Iraq and we hit an al-Qaeda entity that contained their personnel records. And they were personnel records for recruits from across the region, North Africa, Syria, and whatnot. And so we captured al-Qaeda's personnel records. And I remember I'm with my intelligence officer, and I said, wow, I'd love to share all this information with the countries of origin so that they could go back, find out where people are coming from, start to deal with a problem upstream, and I'd like to deal with it in, in countries where they pass through. I said, but how can we? It's secret. And he said, no, wait a minute. You captured it, meaning our, our unit. So you're the classifying authority. And I said, you mean I could unclassify? I just make this unclassified if I want to. And, he, and you know, sort of reflexively, I wouldn't have done that. And he said, you can. I can. Mm. Okay, I do. And, you know, <laughs> people go, well, wait a minute. And I said, it's the enemy's personnel records. They know we hit the target. They know what was in them. They're their records. What are we going to leak mm. to them? What's the danger there? Yeah. Right, yeah. And and yet the culture across many organizations initially recoiled at it. But then it, it worked magnificently. And it, it taught me a lesson about information is only powerful if you use it. And so some of the risks associated with spreading it around are, are overblown. That's so interesting. 
and it's also that thing of narratives right so 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 everybody is so used to some of those narratives around holding on to information really tightly and so that's just what that's the habit that you carry on um but you just get beyond that narrative and people just make a new one and it just changes it was funny because our narrative before that in jsoc was this secretive tiny force and after that it was the narrative we are a network we connect organizations Okay, so I'm going to interrupt the podcast, which you know I don't do very often, and that must mean I've got something very important to share with you. One of the other risk control factors was diversity. And you describe diversity as the antidote to groupthink, which I thought was was really nice. Do you want to just talk a little bit about why you think diversity is so important in helping to do those things of detecting and assessing and, and responding and learning from risk? Yeah, absolutely. First, let me tell you how I see diversity. You know, it's a tendency to think of it as gender or race or religion or whatever. Those are all important, and they are a right. Those are equal opportunity, but real diversity is diversity of perspectives. And so to look at this, to to eliminate your blind spots, we went back to the Bay of Pigs invasion that a brand-new President John F. Kennedy executed in his first weeks in office, and it was a dismal failure. It was a bad plan to use Cuban exiles or expatriates to form a military force and go try to overthrow Fidel Castro. And it wasn't very well conceived or coordinated, but the new president was a bit pressured by the CIA and by other people to to go on and execute this plan. He didn't want to look soft on communism. And so he did. But they did a study afterward. And a guy named Irving Janus did it. He actually created or coined the term groupthink. And what he found was, is in the discussions, there were limited perspectives in the room There were a number of dynamics which caused people to want to go along with the opinion of the group. They didn't want to be seen as an outlier and whatnot. And it created this idea that groupthink can be very powerful and it can take you in very wrong directions. And so 18 months later, President Kennedy, who was now changed by that experience, faces the Cuban Missile Crisis. And what he does is he creates a different dynamic. He creates the XCOM or executive committee to deal with the crisis. And he had some of the usual people, secretary of state, director of the CIA, the chiefs of staff of the military services. But then he brought in some non-traditional participants and he set up a process where the organization would table the problem and they would break into separate groups. They would come up with courses of action. They would compare, essentially critique the opposing courses of action. And he, the president, would only come in and interact with them on an episodic basis over 13 days. And he did it because on day one, they all got in the room and everybody was saying, essentially, we've got to invade Cuba. And he needed more options than that. He didn't want that to be the only thing he could do. So he goes through this process to create it. And it really creates, one, a range of options, which resulted in a blockade, which prevented nuclear war and also with the ability to interact more effectively with the Soviets during the crisis. And it, was, it wasn't perfect. I mean, there's a little bit of mythology about this, about, you know, helped by his brother's book written later. But the reality is he got diversity of perspective. And so he was able to get different thoughts into the room. I think it's so difficult in, in certain organizations or certain teams, right? Particularly when, you know, people get into this sense of, hiring people who, uh, you know, sort of look a bit more like them or kind of have the same kind of perspectives or background as, as them, um, just to get people who are going to see things in different ways. And in the book, you talk about um, symptoms of diversity challenges. Uh, and you've got a, a really good list of um, the stale preservation of the status quo, finger pointing. Uh, so when when the ball gets dropped or whatever, everyone's kind of looking at each other and, you know, trying to find the blame. Why didn't I think of that? Who could have known? Um, 
out, and outpaced by innovation. So diversity is also about bringing in fresh ideas, right? And um, and and sort of adding the kind of perspectives that that really drive drive things forward. And that's necessary. In fact, the book I co-wrote with Anna Batrico, a 25-year-old young lady who works in McChrystal Group. And she wasn't a ghostwriter or a researcher. She was co-author. And it was intentional. I wanted to have someone from a different gender, a different generation, a different family background, because she was going to come at risk differently. She was going to look at these case studies differently. And it did that. Now, there were only two of us, so obviously there's some limit on diversity there. But the importance of getting different, because this would be a different book if Stan McChrystal had gone into my office and written it. I have the same thing sometimes when so I, the last two books that I wrote, I, I co-authored. Um, and then this new one I'm writing on my own. But one of the things I always do before I give it to my editor at the publisher is almost do an edit process with a few different people. So I, I pick people who I know and also invite people who I don't know. Um, and it probably goes through about 30 people before it gets to my editor Um just what was your experience like reading that and you know what stuff have I missed and it is amazing it's amazing how much stuff you do miss isn't it and um you know when you think you've you think you've been thinking about one topic for a long time and then there's still some huge hole in certainly just a huge hole in what you've written down or what you've chosen to express about that thing you're right and what I found is you have to be very thoughtful about who you give it to because there's certain people who love you so much, they will say, we love it. It's the greatest book ever. Yeah, and they right. just don't want yeah. hurt your feelings. You should give it to my wife, Annie. She reads mine and goes, <laughs> it's crap. You know? <laughs> I had this wonderful story in the book, and, and the story's there about my relative who came up missing on the eve of Pearl Harbor. But when we originally wrote it for that chapter, we wrote it as a counter-historical. So we wrote it like he didn't disappear. In fact, he he went on uh, to become an admiral and all like mm. that. And I thought it was this clever literary ruse. And she goes, she finishes the chapter and she goes, you lied to me. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. Uh, yeah, goes, right. I don't want yeah. to be tricked by the author. <laughs> I said, all right. <laughs> mm, I, I find that sometimes myself as well is that you can run the risk of in the, in the sort of creative part of it. I do think there is always a creative part even to you know, um, nonfiction business books, there's a, there's a creative aspect, isn't there? And um, even if you're dealing with, with stuff that's researched and factual and everything else, but sometimes you can get really drawn into the idea of, of trying to, trying to become a better author or being too creative or too clever. And it's like, actually what needs to win out is the user experience of the reader rather than like how clever you feel at the end of it. I want to talk about a few other things before we finish as well. Um, so aside from being having a, a, a long period of time where you must have been under just an intense amount of public scrutiny, as well as obviously having some pretty high f- profile uh, bosses who are the president of the United States and, and other things like that. Um, you were also in the news a little while ago for endorsing Joe Biden. Um, and there's something really human about that story. Um, do you want to just give us the the background to it and um, and then how it, it the sort of coder at the end, if you like, is um, the endorsement of Joe Biden. Senator Biden and I met a couple of times earlier in my career. He was aware of me and obviously I was aware of him. But then when he was the vice president for Barack Obama, that's when I was a four star. And I was assigned to go to take command in Afghanistan. And that was a war that Vice President Biden didn't agree with from from some time back. He thought it was a bad idea and whatnot. So when I was put in command, uh, I was asked to do a review of our strategy. And I came back with a review that said we have to change the way we're operating significantly. And only if we change significantly do we have a chance. And to make it work, we need to to reinforce with 40,000 more soldiers. So we went through this process in the fall of 2009. It became very contentious, I'd say. Never ugly or anything personally, but contentious in the sense that I was advocating for additional forces based upon the change in strategy. And Vice President Biden was not for it. And so in the interactions with the National Security Council in that process, they were by video conference from me from Afghanistan. There were some tough discussions. You could almost call them arguments as as we talked about it. There was no personal animosity, but there was a great deal of scrutiny. President 
Obama decided to conduct the reinforcement. And so he basically accepted that the argument that we made and did it. And I know Vice President was not happy about that. And then in the spring, an article came out in Rolling Stone magazine from a freelance reporter that had profiled my command team. And it was a negative article. You know, it, it was a hit job. And I don't think it was an accurate article or fair, but that's irrelevant. It, it came out and it basically intimated that I and my team didn't respect Vice President Biden and that we were dismissive of him and whatnot. I called Vice President Biden. I told him I didn't see that, but, but I apologized anyway. And that resulted in my very rapid offering my resignation to President Obama and him accepting it and me leaving the military. Now, it was a perfect time for me to become a, a retired, bitter old general. You know, <laughs> I could tell people I got screwed. There were a lot of people who were whispering in my ear, you got screwed. But what's the point of that? I, you know, I came to the conclusion pretty quickly. One, I own it, whether I think it was right or wrong. It's my responsibility. So I got to admit that. And second, it takes a lot of energy to be bitter. And as much as it does to be happy and love people. So I just didn't want to waste it. So I didn't. So I, I moved on in uh, life and then it's the, I stayed out of politics because I'm not naturally political, but I became very much convinced that the reelection of Donald Trump would be very bad for the United States of America. Very, very bad. And so I was asked as it started to sort itself out that, that vice, former Vice President Biden would be the candidate. I was contacted and people said, and they thought, it, they thought there was a personal animosity or at least a history that would make it uncomfortable. They said, how do you feel about it? And I said, well, I think he has to be elected for the nation. And they said, would you say that? And I said, I would, because I think that's important. And I think, I think President Biden is an honorable man, and I think he's got the right intentions, and, and that's what I said. And he called me that mm-hmm. afternoon afterward. And it was, it was one of those cathartic calls because it was very human. He was thankful that I did it, but it was a connection that says, I know we've got some history here, but I really appreciate you stepping up and doing that, which, which I thought was a class act. So those are those moments that, that you've got to take, a, I think, a bigger view. And the quote that was um, then in some of the articles was um, you were talking about Obama and Biden and you said, they didn't see everything the way I did, but in every instance they listened. I thought that was a really lovely quote. I, I think that's the relationship you need to have, particularly with military and civilian leaders. In our nation, the civilian leaders are the final decision makers. What they owe me is to listen to what I have to say. What I owe them is candid, as clear as possible, my views and my recommendations. And then if they make a different decision, it's my job to follow that and not to undercut them and, and whatnot. And so I think that I, I very much felt like they listened uh, and we went through a, a contentious but important process. It feels like there's a real humanity to the book and to a lot of the stories in the book. And there's obviously just such a humanity to that story too. Um, and maybe that leads us on quite nicely to what I'm obsessing about over the uh, the last few months and the next few months, which is writing a book about kindness in leadership. So I just wanted to ask you how you see the role of, of kindness in leadership and um, have there been particular uh, leaders where you've really noticed kindness being in, in strong effect? I think of the people that, that I most appreciate that I personally dealt with. The day I, you know, I left the service with all that notoriety and, and very painful moment, And the day of my retirement, about 30 days after that came out, and I'm still a bit in shock, I got several phone calls, but one came from former President Bush, H.W. Bush, the first. And I had never met Mm, him. I'd never met him. And he just called me to say, I know this is a tough day, but I want to tell you I respect what you did, you know, your service and all that kind of thing. Small acts of kindness. When I had my outbreak with President Obama, he was business-like as he is, but also kind, because he knew that this was about to be a tough moment. We're in an era right now, and the reason I think your book's so important, where kindness isn't as popular, because we may say we want to be kind, but what gets you on the news, what gets your tweet a lot of views, is to be particularly prickly, 
to write something yeah. negative about somebody. Yeah. And people make an entire career of, of doing that. And so the leader who is kind is a bit um, vulnerable in that environment. But at the same time, they also build up from the people interact with them a deep loyalty that, you know, a, a connection and loyalty. And so I think that, I think kindness will come back. I really do. And I, and I think that it will, it will win out. It just may not do it next week or next year. Maybe, <laughs> maybe the book will help. And I think the rise of authoritarian leaders around the world makes kindness mm. more challenged. But, yeah. but I mean, that's what it's about. And then on the smaller scale, you know, social authority, authoritarian leaders on the, the, you know, bigger scale and then social media and people's online interactions on the smallest possible scale it kind of feels like there's a that there's a link there in terms of kindness being a useful um useful tool are you are you able to say a bit more about president obama and how he was kind in that situation it's not fair of me to to talk any of the specifics in there but i will say that what was clearly the most difficult day of my life he didn't make it any more difficult in fact, in many ways, he, he mm. did something that he thought he had to do. And yeah. I, I would have preferred he do differently, but I didn't. I respected his decision. And he did it with a level of class and compassion that is what a president ought to have. And so I walked out of there appreciative of that, you know, still in shock. But there are a lot of ways you can do things in life. There's a lot of ways you can treat a waiter at a restaurant or someone who does some interaction with you. And you get a choice in every interaction, whether to show kindness in class or not. And I would say that, that that's, in many ways, that's a measure of someone. I don't know how many times I've, I've known of leaders of business or military, and they're very successful and whatnot, and then you find out that their people just hate them, or they are terrified of them. <laughs> And my opinion of them just drops immediately because I think if someone is fundamentally dismissive of people, then they fundamentally don't respect them. And, and that is a very essential character issue with me. You've obviously worked for some incredible leaders in terms of their fame and notoriety, as well as um, studied lots of leaders and, and you indeed have a whole book profiling leaders as well are there particular things that you always look for in you know if someone's to say to you what makes a good leader i think it's funny the first one i say is always self-discipline because most of us know what we believe a good leader is and if we all wrote a list down of, of behaviors they'd be pretty similar the difference is we don't do them uh, and, and i get it's from big things it's staying focused on a vision not becoming discouraged and following through for your organization or for yourself. It's how you treat people. It's what are your priorities? If, if we say my priorities are customers or my priorities are my people, and then your behaviors don't reflect that, then that's a lack of self-discipline. Yeah. So I, I think that becomes the number one one. Can the person control themselves and therefore be the right thing for other people? I think empathy is really key, too. And I, I say here, not sympathy. You know, you don't want to be rubbing everybody's belly and telling them, you know, what nice people they are. But empathy allows you to understand that everybody comes to it from a different life journey. I used to talk about meeting with Afghan elders, and I'd sit across from them, and they have turbans on and big beards and, and weathered faces, different religion from me, different background. And so it was very obvious that their conclusions about life, their views were based upon their experience. And if I'd had that same experience, I'd probably have those exact same views. And so it doesn't make me right and them wrong or vice versa. What it means is you've got to be able to put yourself in the other person's position and at least respect the fact they're probably not irrational. They probably have a reason to think what they think. And so if you start there, you can start to deal with people on a different level. And again, you don't have to agree. You just have to be able to respect that their, their background has produced a view. And then the final question, if you look back on the incredible career that you've had, is there, is there a particular thing that you 
look at if you if you're thinking about success and reflecting on success is there a particular moment or a particular instance that you look back on and say yeah i'm really happy with that yeah i'm going to describe several because they all have the same dna um last friday my firm we got 88 people had our all hands first time in two years we've been back in person we did all the, the protocols for covid to be safe before and then we had the all hands and then we had a social event that evening and there was this sense of family and connection and affection for each other and that reminded me so much of my time in the counter-terrorist fight when it although it was very tough we had this sense of we're all in this together and this pride that we were doing it really well or back when i was a young company commander 150 so rangers and you do a tough training operation and then the next morning you'd still be exhausted and you'd be sitting around a little defensive position or whatever and you'd be connecting in a way where the bonds are extraordinarily strong you've just been through something you love the mm -hmm. people you're with you never use the word love that would not be acceptable then but the idea is i'm so happy to be a part of this because they've accepted me i admire them and and i i take great feelings so what i'm proudest of and what's made me happy is whenever i'm part of creating that dynamic when people think that they're in an organization that is really special to be in, and I had some part of creating or crafting it, you can just step on the sideline and, and sort of smile. My wife and I walked home from the social event as all of the young people headed out to bars and whatnot, uh, just sort of basking in the idea that we've been a part of something special, and that's a gift. It reminds me of that saying that good leadership is shaping what happens so that good things happen when you're not there as well. Uh, it really, really feels like you've made that happen. Um, Stan, it's been just such a pleasure and an honor having you on Beyond Busy. Um, obviously the book is out and you can get it everywhere. Um, is there anything else you want to share with us in terms of people being able to connect in with you, find out more about what you do, anything else you want to share? Well, this is what McChrystal Group does. We help organizations work. And if people take a look at the book, I think you'll find that it's approachable. It's not a textbook. And so if that's helpful, then I'm happy. And I just thank you so much, Graham, for letting me be a part of this. Absolutely. And I really enjoyed it. As I said, it's just full of just really fascinating stories and quite a few that I've written on, on my notes and we haven't even had time to get on to. So um, thank you so much for being with us and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again at some other point. Thank you. Take care. So there you go, General Stanley McChrystal. And just want to say thanks quickly to Penguin for um, helping to make that one happen. And also to, to Stan's team and to um, Emily and my team for helping to figure out the date. Sort of had some trouble trying to get a date in and then um, I had to cancel at the last minute as well. And so finally we got there and it was worth the wait. Really love that episode. And actually really love the book. I've read a couple of those books before where it's, you know, kind of looking at lessons from military operations and then putting that into a business context. And, you know, I have to say, sometimes it feels like some of those books lack a bit of the humanity and the reflection on the idea that actually the industry involved is obviously like it's brutal work right like by its very nature and I think what was really interesting reading that book and I'd really implore you to go and get not just actually the risk book but we, we actually didn't really talk about his other book um, which is called Leaders which is really good but it really feels like he is someone who thinks a lot about the nature of that work and what's involved and you know weighing up those different risks and also just just being very aware of the kind of operations and work that he's doing and the consequences of that stuff so yeah real sort of sense of humanity from reading his work and yeah just just really uh interesting storyteller too i'm sure you um i'm sure you found that listening to that episode um so that's a really good one to kick off the year so um just want to say happy new year we're back and we're going to be back on our normal two weekly um schedule through 2022 i'm actually recording this little outro at the end of 2021 so i can't actually tell you what my new year's resolutions are i've got kind of some um some idea in my head of what i'm going to be writing down um as i record this in the past but yeah happy 2022 i hope you're off to a good 
good start with everything. And um, just want to say, if you're not signed up yet, so I do this Sunday email, it's called Rev Up for the Week. And basically it's one positive or productive idea for the week ahead. It goes out every Sunday evening at 4.05 p.m. And if you want to sign up to that, just go to grahamalcott.com and you'll find little, you know, forms, sign up forms on every page of my site. You'll be able to sign up for Rev Up for the Week. So please go and do that if you haven't already. And all through the year, I'll just drip feed, feed you just little ideas, um, little bits of productivity advice, but also just um, little thoughts and perspectives and just stuff I'm seeing in the world. And just the idea is one idea. They're nice and short. It's every Sunday. It's free. Just head to graymorecott.com and find out more. And thanks also to our sponsors for the show, Think Productive. So if you're interested in helping to revolutionize the world of work, helping to help your people to do their best work, then give us a shout. It's thinkproductive.com. And we've got offices all over the place. So in the UK, in Western Europe, um, in North America, and also in Australia for Australia and New Zealand as well. So all over the place and developing some new territories as well. We were um, actually starting some work in India this year and a couple of other places which are really interesting in the Middle East too. So wherever you are, drop us a line. And if you want to contact me directly, I'm I'm actually really taking a break quite seriously from, from all social media. So I know I'm kind of active on Instagram and Twitter in terms of putting out content, um, but that's actually not me. That's generally Emily that does that. And I've got a little message on Twitter that basically says um, I don't check out replies. Um, but also that I've just deleted Instagram. I just got really sick of it. And for me, once I download it, as soon as I start to feel myself doing that mindless scrolling, then I just get rid of it completely. And even though I was using freedom to good effect before, it just felt like I wanted the extra layer. But yeah, so um, if you want to get in touch with me, email is definitely the best way. Graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. Does that make me sound old? You know how um, younger people now, they don't ever sort of exchange phone numbers and start WhatsApping each other. They just exchange like Instagram handles and probably TikTok. What do they call those? Their talks or whatever. I don't know what it is. <laughs> whatever your TikTok avatar is. I don't know. I probably sound so old saying that. But yeah, isn't that funny how um, I probably think this is like me doing productivity in a really good way and, and being very conscious of my attention by not being on Instagram. And to anyone sort of younger than 30, I probably just sound ancient. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, so just drop me an email. It's graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. And that's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode. And I'll be back recording the outros in the same year that they go out. So I'll tell you more next time about what my New Year's resolutions are for the year and what plans I've got ahead. Uh, but right now I'm heading off on my Christmas break. So from the past, I'll just say take care and bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>